It's quite warm in here, isn't it? If you're like me, you're used to going to Anglican churches where you put your coat on to go in because it's colder inside. So this is a bit of an exception. Do do we just turn me down? Is that that, brilliant? Thank you. If you're not used to a church uh, context, what we usually have is an address, a sermon, a talk, however you want to uh, describe it. And then, of course, we're going to turn to prayers and Neil will lead us in prayer before we come towards the, the end. But if you're like me... Probably at about 7.29 last night, you were not thinking about services, getting to Broadfield. Where on earth is this place called Christ the Lord in Crawley? You were probably either turning the television off or you were turning the television on, depending on your particular ilk and interest. For me, I was turning it on, of course. And I was surrounded by goodness knows how many Herberts down at Noel's Tooth, because I stayed on there for the evening. And it's very interesting watching a football match surrounded by 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13-year-olds. Boy, did they get excited. They touched the ball. Wow, yeah, he's the other side. What do you mean he's the other side? But there we go. So it's 2010, and England, of course, are going to win the final, July the 11th, 7.30 p.m. Book it now. It's a prophecy for those who believe in prophecy. (laughs) Or an empty hope for some. Well, I was full of hope, and probably you were at four minutes and 27 seconds into the match. I thought, this is it! We're going to trounce them! 5 1 like Holland, or was it Germany about eight years ago? Uh, And then after 40 minutes, my my, my hopes were dashed. My dopes were hashed. There we go, yeah. My hope they were there as that as well. Uh, And I thought, here we go again, back to the good old days of England, okay? But uh, were you with me in that? Were you with me if you're really very honest? Yeah, if you sage nods his head, okay? We won't quote any of you dignitaries on that, okay? Um, the positioning was good, though. I, I did feel, actually, just being a bit of a pundit now, our positioning was very good. You know, our passing had fluidity. We knew where everybody was off the ball and everything. And so there is hope. Uh, but we just didn't finish very well, did we? Heskey did his best. He's an England footballer, for those who don't know. But uh, we didn't finish well. And today, we're meeting someone in uh, Blind Bart, Blind Bartimaeus, who, who raised himself from bed each morning probably like 7.29, not quite knowing what on earth is going to happen for the rest of his day. And he would go to a familiar spot where he would be allowed to beg. There is, there is no social care system there. There is no social security. There is no fail-safe for those that are in margins of society. What he gets at the end of the day is what he has to live on for the next day. This was his lot, his day. His hopes are just non-existent. And by the end of the day, I suspect for him, day in, day out, for many, many years, perhaps 40 years of his life or more, uh, nothing has changed. He finishes where he started. That's not my hope for England. My hope for England is that tomorrow beckons. But you see, for this guy, tomorrow doesn't mean anything different than yesterday. And then along comes this small crowd. It's not going to be hundreds, it's not going to be thousands, because where the Gospels tell us the numbers, they do so for a reason. So it's going to be a small crowd. We don't know how many, just a few, but a noisy enough to get this blind man's attention. And he raises himself up and he wants to know what's going on. And then he opens his mouth. But it isn't opening his mouth that matters, that changes the course of history for this man. It's actually what he says when his mouth opens. It's the words he chooses. They stun everyone. Because they are not the words of emptiness, nor of vain hope. They are words that say, I may be blind, but I know. 
I may not see, but within me, I know. I may not have eyes, but my soul tells me so. And do you know something? The minute he says those words, the crowd, if you read your passage there or listen to it being read to us, the crowd know too. But their response is to silence him because the words he screams out, that's what he would have done. This is not politeness. He is screaming for his future. Above the bustle are dangerous words. They say, I have been seeking, but now I've seen, and now I long to leave this fine place on this dusty road, and I want to join you. Have my first perhaps, image, please, John. And so looking at that message of Bartimaeus, he starts in a position of a blindness. And he is seeking, then he sees, and when he finds, he, he journeys, he sojourns, he journeys to seek, to see and then to sojourn. And I just thought I would like to unpack that just for a few minutes for those who have gathered here this morning, those who are usually here, and just ask some questions of ourselves. I wonder in terms of seeking, have my next image, John, please. A train image for the, uh, for the CD. I wonder if you've ever sought something and then held back. And if you're honest, you look back in your life and you regret that moment of holding back. <coughs> I was on a train from London. People familiar to here will know the minute I say uh, I was on a train to London, I'm usually going to have some deep theological conversation with some poor random stranger sitting opposite me. So never sit opposite me on a train to London. If you see me, go to another carriage. In this, time, in this moment, I was just sitting on a train, and we're going out to, I was going out to London to, to a meeting, and, and, and you can just see the gherkin as you sort of come into London, can't you? That great tall uh, tower. But imagine you're on a train to London and you see the signs and they're high up, aren't they, some of them? Particularly as you go into places like Elephanton Castle. They're written on the high billboards above where people down below will see them. And when you, when you glimpse at them, then they're gone. And if you go down below to go back and look at them, you won't see them because you're at the wrong angle. There's a moment for Bar- blind Bartimaeus here, maybe for us, where he, he has a moment of glimpsing through the window to see something. And when it's gone, it's actually gone. This was a fleeting moment for him, and it would soon pass. And so he cries out. His self-sufficiency, his improvement, self-reward, self-fulfillment, they are fleeting things for a blind man, because they don't actually help his inner quest and his ask. The first bishop of Liverpool said of this passage, those who do not draw near to Jesus do not feel sufficiently the weight of their own sin, as if they're on the train and think, the train's going to take me there, and I'm all okay. But he knows his position, Bartimaeus, and it is not a happy one. Not because he's blind. It's not a happy one because of the inner yearning of his soul. And so in verse 47, he calls out a word. He says, have mercy on me. And in case you miss it, he says it again a couple of verses later, doesn't he? Have mercy on me. It's told to us twice based on faith, not on power or authority or riches, when he calls again, he's focusing on that word, mercy. Have mercy. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And before us in the passage, we've, we've met a rich man who has come skidding literally so that the stones go through his knees to Jesus, and he leaves empty. And then after that, we meet two disciples, followers of Jesus, called James and John, the sons of thunder, because they had great attitude and they come and they want to know which one, of me, which one of us is going to be the best in heaven. And they leave Jesus chastened. And yet the blind man with nothing comes to Jesus 
And as you'll see, he gets everything. There is a Turkish proverb that maybe speaks into this. If a man would live in peace, he should be blind, deaf, and dumb. I thought that was very challenging. I, as a preacher, speak many words, many days of the week, and many people don't listen. I'm sure you're the exception to the rule. Sometimes it is good just to stop and to take stock, isn't it? You don't have to be religious to agree with that. I wonder if sometimes we're too proud, too knowledgeable, me included, too erudite in my biblical understanding for my own good of the simplicity of following the Christian faith. I'm told there is a a story uh, of an American president called Wilson, some of you will have heard of him, a true story, who was out riding on a horse. He decided to go on a horse ride, and so his Secret Service agents had to all suddenly go and find horses as well to ride alongside with him. And they came across a small boy who stepped back as this this entourage thundered along of the president with the Secret Service trying to keep up with him. And as the boy stepped back at the crossroads, they swept past. The president brought his horse to a pause at the next crossroads and turned to his Secret Service agent and said, Did you see what that boy did? No, sir, they said. Actually, being American, they wouldn't have said that, would they? don't know what they'd have said. No, sir, or something. He made a face at me, said the president, shaking his head very gravely. Well, this agent was shocked at this. The president paused just a moment, then leant over his saddle and whispered to the agent, Did you see what I did? No, sir. Well, said the president with a twinkle in his eye, I turned and made a big face right back at him and rode off. I wonder if we're too intelligent, too erudite, too clever, too grown up for our own good sometimes. In our Christian lives, those of us here who are Christians, have we outgrown the simplicity of my faith? Do I dress it up with questions that are a smokescreen to living daily for my Christian life? Do I make myself too busy for the most fundamental thing of life, Jesus? Do I self-indulge and convince myself that I'm beyond all this and silence my own discipleship? Because the crowd want to silence the man. If you read your passage, they turn on him. And they would not have been polite. They turn to silence him. Because he's getting in the way of their show. They want to see this Jesus. They're not necessarily his followers. They don't necessarily agree with him, but they're in on the show. And so to silence this man that's going to spoil it for them. And their lack of faith is perhaps a great sadness, isn't it? Compared to the faith of this blind man who turns and says, have mercy on me. And of course, Jesus is not a crowd pleaser, is he? And I thought this is a good passage, just perhaps an aside from members of the church to those who have gathered. And I would suggest that when we set ourselves as a final authority, if you and I become judge and adjudicator, because as a Christian I would say many here, you have moral authority from God. I'm sure you use it wisely, like Bartimaeus wisely called out. It may even make you unelectable as a local councillor. It might make you the minority in a vote, but to do the godly and right thing. And for me as a Christian, I have no option but to speak where there is injustice, where God makes a difference, where people are walking a path to oblivion. 
So from seeking, can I have my next image, John? He sees, doesn't he? A blind man sees. The irony isn't lost on you and I, is that? Is it there? And Mark does this on purpose. How can a blind man see? But it's not about his eyesight. It's about his spiritual eyes. Yes, he is healed physically, but yes, he is healed spiritually too. And what you then have is Mark 11, verse 1. Jesus goes public, he's entered to Jerusalem next. This is the last healing before he goes to Jerusalem. And that's where he seeks an audience for the first time. And we know what blind Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus has obviously heard about. We know that the disciples have clouded vision. We know the crowd are blind and helpless. We know that Jesus perfectly knows what he's going to do. And blind Bartimaeus wants in on the action. But for mercy, not for himself, but for mercy. And I thought, well, what's he seen? Well, he's seen calming of a storm. He's seen the raising of the dead. He's seen the healing of illness. He's seen demons and the demonic and satanic things cast out. He's seen Satan fall like lightning. He's seen the marginalized raised up. He's seen the broken healed. He has seen without seeing, but he knows these things in his heart. And when Jesus approaches, he says, this is my moment. And so he addresses Jesus not just with mercy. He says, you are the son of David. There are 17 verses in the New Testament that use the phrase, son of David. He's not just calling him good man. He is saying, you are the God. Why did a crowd want to silence him? Because he calls him son of David. Because Bartimaeus recognizes Jesus for who he is. For those who don't know, that's the Christian code. For you are the Christ, the unique Messiah. Or to put it as Acts 4.12 says, salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which you will be saved. And I thought, can I, can I dare use that in the church this morning? And I thought, I don't have a right not to use it. Because Bartimaeus sees what others don't see, and he speaks it out. Apparently this week, in the Times, Ofsted have uh, written a report on the state of RE. You may have read this in some of your papers in the United Kingdom. And they used this story as an example, Blind Bartimaeus. They went into a secondary school and they heard an RE teacher who I would not like to criticize because I suspect this RE teacher maybe just hasn't been trained on it. And maybe that's my fallacy that I haven't been involved there to help, or we as a church. So we shouldn't be pointing fingers, those of us that are Christians. And was told that this story is not about healing. It's not about a blind man. It's not actually about a guy called Jesus. This is the story about what it feels to be a blind person in 21st century Britain today. Well, of course it is. But of course it isn't, either. You see, it's far deeper than that. It's about the son of David. It's about the son of David. Those who see us, those of us who see what he's saying, we have no choice but to speak out in faith. It's about the salvation of Jesus Christ. And for him, finally... So he goes from seeking to seeing, to my third little final image, please, John, to sojourning, to traveling, some cases, packed and ready to go. But of course, if you were to read the first three verses of your Bible passage there, you would see he doesn't have suitcases, he can't afford them, but he does have a cloak. And what he does with the cloak, even before he is healed, as a step of faith, he rips his cloak off and leaves it lying on the ground. Now, that's a very important thing to do. It would be rather like, I'm sure none of you would do this, one of the, uh, our distinguished company taking your chains of office and dropping them here and never coming back to collect them. 
of course, we gratefully receive them and care for them on eBay. We too have a hole in our roof. Line up here, please. No. But you see, he, by leaving his cloak, he is leaving his identity, his old identity behind. It's the only thing he owns. It's the only thing he would be able to afford. It's the cloak he puts around himself as a blind, destitute man at night. It's the cloak that he lays out to sit on, and people throw money, you've seen it on the tube, people throw money onto the blanket. That is his every belonging. To throw it off, even before, that, even before he is healed, is a sign of faith. He is coming for mercy to the son of David with just the smallest amount of faith that says, I think this could be it. And I'm going to leave that cloak behind. My strong suspicion, though it's not in the Gospels, is the cloak was never picked up again. Because he now sojourns, he travels into the passage, he takes his place with the disciples. Look into the book of Acts, he's still in there with the disciples, even when they're starting to be killed. Sojourning can be hard. We're all on hard journeys. Faith, life, Parenting, older age, we're all on journeys and they can be hard. But just three things. Bartimaeus is never going to see life the same again, is he? Everything now is new to him. A freshness. I wonder if you have a freshness in your spirit. Secondly, he's full of joy. And thirdly, he takes his place with the disciples. He turns his back on the old ways and he turns to a new way. Your way is wherever you take yourself. But I wonder which way it is with Christ. I wonder in your, your office, I wonder in your home, I wonder in your unemployment, your early retirement, your reduced pension fund, your Christian worship. I wonder if you know that joy, that leaving behind the past and turning forward to discipleship. Let us pray.